of contradiction. Particularly, what I'm getting at is we, we're drowning almost in an ocean of information without the skills to navigate, to make sense of that vast ocean of information. On the larger level, we might say the macro level, we are interconnected, right? But yet at the same time, and you could see this all around the world, we're so divided. On the smaller level, we might say the micro level, we are, um, we're together as communities, as societies, as families, but yet we're so, um, we're, we're, we're stuck in our virtual worlds, right? So we're together, but yet we're apart from one another at the same time. And of course, I'm, I'm talking about the information age, right? Technology, the iPhone, um, uh, uh, internet, etc. Our so-called smart technology, smart, I think smart is, is kind of a euphemism for uh, speed and efficiency. Uh, it really hasn't made us smarter <laughs> intellectually, uh, though we continue to, to sort of deceive ourselves in thinking that these technologies do in fact make us uh, uh, smarter. We really don't have time these days to consider, to reflect, to slow down, to meditate on things like truth, goodness, justice as well, and beauty. You know, and scholars often talk about dark ages in uh, civilization, period, periods in which there's a decrease in learning. Texts are lost, institutions are uh, not set up or even destroyed or not accessible in certain areas. But I would say that, that not only is ours, our age, um, much worse, uh, it's frustratingly contradictory. So as I said, we have more information that we can truly manage. And in fact, what we do is we create more technology to manage that which we can't ourselves manage even further. Uh, so this creates a, a, a difficulty uh, in our history, a, a sagging interest in truth and beauty and goodness, a decline in the mind. The consequences of these habits of our contemporary age will, includes, will include things like depression, unrest, loneliness, and these are all symptoms of earlier ages. In short, they lead further away from peace and a sense of true rest. Well, our passage today, Philippians 4, 7 through 9, is for Christians living in dark ages. The Apostle Paul exhorts us to meditate on the things that our society has at best paid lip service to, and at worst have abandoned altogether. Paul's words are more pressing now for the Christian than they have ever been. So let's look at uh, Philippians 4, and you, you have a copy of it printed in your bulletin, Philippians 4, 7 through 9. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, 
will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, I don't want to mislead you. I'm not priming you to become warriors to fight to re- regain the cultural high ground. Let's destroy technology. Let's, you know, let's take the culture back. This is not, in fact, what Paul uh, is calling for uh, in the letter. So, so let's try to, in his letter to the Christians at uh, Philippi, and so let's try to follow Paul's mindset here. Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, and that's a city in uh, northern Greece, sort of north uh, of the Aegean, is one of immense encouragement. This is a very encouraging letter, and let's be encouraged by it. We get a sense of Paul's joy in writing to the church, and this is, of course, a very sharp contrast to the Uh, letters he sends to churches like in Corinth and uh, Galatia. Very, maybe frustrating on Paul's part and very discouraging maybe to um, write to these churches. But Philippi, it's almost like a breath of, they're they're a breath of fresh air. There's a a relief there. And our passage is a kind of a summary or concluding uh, um, statement in support to the to encourage the Christians in Philippi, uh, a word of encouraged by, encouragement by way of an exhortation. He calls Christians to meditate on an aspect of the gospel related to the humility attached to the Christian life, for the purpose of reaching the end goal of truth, beauty, goodness, namely peace. I mean. Let me uh, say that again. You can see this is sort of the main idea that I want to pack in today. Paul calls Christians to meditate on that aspect of the gospel related to the humility of the Christian life for the purpose of reaching the end goal truth, beauty, and goodness, namely peace. Right? So an aspect of the gospel related to the humility of the Christian life for the purpose of peace. We can summarize it even, we can make it even shorter there. Now let me expand on this main idea under three headings. Number one, humility. Number two, meditation. Number three, peace. And each one, in order beginning with humility the first, we could say relates to, let's say for instance, humility relates to a state of being. The next, meditation, of doing, of action. Sometimes we think of meditation as actually not doing anything at all. 
this is quite the opposite of what Paul tells us. Uh, this meditation is an activity, it's a doing. And then finally, what we receive from the state of being, from the doing, what we receive is peace. Okay? So the first part, uh, a first heading, humility. Um, now, before we look specifically at the verses, humility is here, this, this heading is going to look at the overall letter as a whole. Okay? I've said that this letter is encouraging, but its encouragement is tied to humility. Christ's humility, Paul's humility, and the Christian's humility. Now, you might not think this is all that uplifting, uh, especially when it comes to growing in the Christian life. But our comfort and peace in life comes in our accepting, that is resting and trusting, the example of Christ as a servant, humble servant, the experiences that humbled Paul, and the trials that members of the church will face in this life. So let's think about this idea of humility as it relates to encouraging. At its core, humility is about selflessness. Giving oneself for others, making yourself second, or maybe third or fourth. It also means giving up control and adapting to experiences that may take us by surprise. And you should hear in that, uh, you should hear in this two important aspects necessary for humility. And I've, I've um, sort of designated this as well, a humility that is internal and a humility that is external. I had a conversation with Canon yesterday and we were talking about other ways to categorize it. Uh, he was talking about proactive as in, in, internal and then defensive um, as the external humility. You might talk about subjective humility or objective humility. Okay, those are th th these are things to uh, think about. But listen to my, my sense of what, of what I'm trying to get at here. So internal humi humility, it's kind of like a, an internal attitude that we have of selflessness, right? We want to be humble, so we're going to take on an attitude of humility. And I, would, it's just, I, I, I think that this aspect of humility is something we're ready to accept, right? We're willing to accept this one. This is fine on our terms. But it's not sufficient. The other side of humility is not what we would choose for ourselves, right? Um, it's interesting, like I said, that we accept humility. We, we might say, Lord, give us humility, uh, but it's, all, it's oftentimes on our turn, okay? Like we want to be in control. Unfortunately, that's not really how it works. And this leads us to the other side of humility, which is the external element of uh, humility. And here I mean encounters that come to us from the outside. We're not aware of these things happening to us. Surprises that may come in our life that may interrupt 
um, our, our lives and, and our control, let's say. We have to give up control. These external aspects of external humility might be um, the enemies that we face, maybe religious, religious enemies, <coughs> secular enemies, and we'll see it in just a second. They might be from you know, disagreements. You know, I, I see um, in uh, chapter 4, there's a disagreement between a Yudi and Syntyche, right? Uh, they're laboring with Paul, and Paul encourages them to be of one mind. Okay. Uh, who knows what the disagreement is, but pursuing humility, uh, sorry, uh, pursuing unity can be a humbling experience since it means, number one, putting aside what we want or what we're urging. Who's right in this situation? Yudhya or Syntyche, right? Well, let's pursue unity. Sometimes that means backing off, maybe being silent. It also means opening oneself up to listening to others, right? Those are uh, things that we encounter that almost compel us to um, be humble. Now, Paul gives examples of true humility, right? Uh, in, in, this, in this letter uh, to the Philippian church, the first example that he gives is of Christ. Let's look at that internal humility of Christ. Christ's submission to the Father by putting on the form of a servant. This is also the famous passage where we find in Philippians 2 where Christ um, emptied himself. This is known as the kenosis theory. We have to be careful. This doesn't mean that, that Jesus emptied himself of his divinity. That would erase his identity. But it's that he took on the form of a servant. He goes from a heaven being this um, uh, 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 exalted uh, figure to you know, a lowly service. So imagine going from the highest place in the entire cosmos to the lowest place, geographically, Nazareth, socioeconomically, a carpenter and a fisherman. Um, even theologically and philosophically, as he was forsaken uh, by uh, the Father on the cross. Christ's external humility, what uh, you can almost say, which added to that, was his being rejected by his own, rejected by the world. But like I say, going back to the Father, the Father's wrath being poured out on Christ uh, on, on the cross for our salvation. The second example of humility comes from Paul. Paul says, look at Christ. Then Paul says, look at me. Paul is in prison uh, uh, in uh, chapter 1, 17 through 18, and obviously living in the shadow of death. I don't think you can get more of a humble experience than that. And this is the external aspects of his humility. Um, we might think that in order to advance the gospel, we need to have the right circumstances, a freedom to do the work. How can, how can anyone serve God in prison in these humbling uh, circumstances? Well, Paul does advance the gospel, right? Even throughout the whole imperial guard. So he spreads, the, the gospel is being spread in the most humbling of circumstances. 
So it does make us think twice about making <coughs> excuses, and I'm talking to myself here, making excuses about our inability to properly serve God because of our socioeconomic circumstances. But Paul also demonstrates his internal humility, his own selflessness. And I'm, I'm, I'm just struck by his, let's say, subjective attitude here. Those who preach the gospel out of, out of uh, he mentions in uh, Philippians 1, 15 through 18, uh, about those who preach the gospel out of rivalry or selfish intent. Right? People are competing with him. That would really work against our pride. And Paul says, what does it matter? <laughs> Only that the gospel is being advanced. Right? It's not about me. It's about the gospel. Right? In this way, I, I think Paul is, is, is very much like a, uh, you can almost say like a Christian Stoic. Um, and I bring up Stoics because he knows the uh, Stoic uh, philosophy. And, and much of the Stoic philosophy in the, in the Hellenistic world was one of not really being too concerned about changing the world, just being aware of your attitude as things come to you uh, in, uh, in the world. Now, there's, of course, more to it in, in Stoic philosophy. Uh, they did believe in the structure of the cosmos, the logos. They did believe in that. And Paul does believe, he's not a Stoic, but he does believe in God's structure and God's order uh, in, uh, in, in the world. But he's willing to put himself aside. He's not competing with anyone because he has the goal in front of him, which is the good news of the gospel. And believers, too, need to understand that they will face similar humbling situations. As we follow the example of Christ, we should not be surprised when persecution comes to us. John 15, 20. As they persecute Christ, they will persecute the followers of Christ. And 1 Peter 4, 12. Don't be surprised when trials come upon you. Okay? Paul also urges the church to remain vigilant, to watch for heresies, Philippians 3. Now, why would he say this here? That is, why would he say this in relation to humility? Christ's humility, Paul's humility, and as I just said, the Christian's humility. Well, in one sense, humility, uh, I think, puts us on our guard, makes us, uh, sharpens our senses, makes us aware of our limitations. The humble person is, is uh, really supreme. Um, oh, sorry, <laughs> the, the, the a haughty person, the person filled with pride, they can do anything, they control anything. The humble person says, you know, there are things I can do and there are things that I can't do. So we're aware of our uh, limitations. We know our limits of what we can or what we cannot know. And this requires an examination of our lives. What are those limits? We don't have it all together. We're not in control, but are subject to forces outside of us. In many ways, it's only through ignorance, accepting ignorance, and that's to humble yourself, that we come to know. But remember that Paul is talking about humbling through persecution in Philippians 3. Heresies can be a form of trial. 
especially as they confront the truth of the gospel. Such trials require us to think and also to communicate, but also to rest on the Holy Spirit who will do the work for us. 1 Peter 3.15, be ready in season and out. And also Luke 12, the Holy Spirit will give us the words to speak. Now Paul specifically is thinking thinking about those who add to God's grace and thereby eliminate God's grace by mutilating the flesh. He says this in Philippians 3, a reference to the Judaizers. Centralizing acts like circumcision nullifies the gospel, the idea that Christ has once for all done away with the works of the law. Now note that I said centralizes. Paul didn't have a problem with circumcision per se. It's not such an act itself or the celebration of certain holy days that Paul talks about elsewhere in Romans. That's the problem. But rather, as was was the case with the Christians in Galatia, it's the assumption that more is needed to be done by humans in order to be saved. God, you've done your work. Thank you very much. Move over. Let me then finish uh, the work. This, this, as I said, eliminates God's grace and it puts enmity uh, toward uh, or against the gospel. He said, Paul says this because there is a great temptation. I mean, we're human beings to rely on our own works, to forget our humble state. Hence the reason he calls us, Paul says, to strain, Philippians 3.12, to strain or move ahead to what lies ahead, pressing toward the goal. Then there's, Paul also humbles himself again by appealing to his own circumstances. No one had done better at keeping the law than he did, but he counted this as nothing in relation to faith in Christ. So he goes back to himself as an example. Now, it's important to clarify a couple points before we move on to the second point. Paul's not assuming a a tension between the body, the flesh, and the soul. Philippians 3, 3. Um, As I said, I know he's aware of Hellenistic philosophies that would tear the body and soul apart from one another, the soul be good and the body as evil. Paul's not really... Uh, um, accepting that. In fact, he affirms the work of Christ through the flesh, through the body. Likewise, we should not think that we can ignore, ignore the demands of a Christian life, right? So Paul says, nah, it doesn't matter what you do. No, no, no. Don't, don't go that, that far. As believers, for instance, we don't forsake the gathering of the saints. We don't reject the sacraments the preaching of the word, prayer, and meditation. This is all part of, as we'll see in point number two, that's all part of the meditative aspect that Paul encouraged us to be involved in. So that gets us to point number two, meditation. The activity. Paul wishes for the love of the Philippian Christians to grow through discernment so that they will agree and be in accord with excellence. Paul understands the Greek concept of virtue, arete, which means excellence, but specifically it means flourishing, 
right? To grow, to get stronger. And he says this in chapter 1, verse 10. And then he gives this, uh, the meat of our passage, verses 8 through 9, he gives us this list of whatevers. And I want us to really think about this. But before I read uh, verses 8 and 9 again, I do want to emphasize one thing. That I am talking about meditation as an activity, as a work. But don't think about this in terms of working uh, to attain your salvation. This is not works righteousness. Paul's talking to believers, right? So it's not a matter of like these, the, the, the Philippian church doesn't have Christ. They already have Christ. So as you are in Christ, let's do some work. Let's do some activity, right? We're already in, um, uh, grafted into the body of Christ. And we can grow in that. We can get stronger uh, in that. So let's read uh, verses 8 and 9 again. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, (coughs) whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Or think about, could also be translated, meditate on these things. Verse 9, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things the God of peace will be with you. Okay, so first, a word on meditation, to think on. The Greek word actually there means to think about or to meditate on means to to logicize. That's actually the closest uh, um, uh, uh, translation to to the actual Greek, to (coughs) logicize, meaning to reckon, to calculate, to wait, to discern, to weigh, I should say, and discern. This gets us really at the heart of what religion's all about. Religion is, by nature, a meditative activity. Meditating activity. The Latin meaning of the term religion means to read over and over and over and over and over again. This is not a meditation that requires a kind of mindlessness. Empty your mind. No, it's a focusing. It's serious concentration and contemplation on things in reality. The past few weeks, I've been uh, studying uh, Chinese religiously. What do I mean by that? Well, there's you know phrases, and you know I'm, I'm memorizing the Lord's Prayer, the Apostles' Creed, and each line I will repeat five times. Five. I'm not going to show you here. Five times, each line, five times. That's what religion means. It's really, it means reading it over and over and over and over again. Or when I pronounce my, my letters in Chinese, I have to pronounce them over and over and over again. Very humbling. <laughs> I am extremely humble on that point. Um, but, but it's a religious activity. It's doing it over and over and over again. Now, this meditating is meditating on the the package that Paul gives to us, right? The whatever is. So let's go through each one of these words. Whatever is true, alethe. Anything opposed to falsehood. This is what this means. Anything unchanging and eternal. That, you know, the things that stay put in the world, that are not relative, that apply to everyone everywhere but more so anything that agrees with how God has structured the cosmos. 
Think about those things. Okay? Think about those things. Whatever's honorable, semna, meaning to worship or revere, to worship the activity of worshiping in a sort of sober and a very serious manner. This related to religious practices and sacrifices that would be cons- that you would you would sacrifice something as reverent. You would do it reverently, in honorable honorable way. Whatever's just, dikaios, meaning righteous. Justice means right relations between humans and between humans of God. This also can relate to our responsibility to the world, to others, and to God. What is that responsibility? Well, let's meditate on it. Let's think about it. Whatever is pure, the Greek word here, uh, uh, agnos, um, it's also where we get the word hagia, like hagia sophia, holy wisdom, hagia. Holy. Or the name Agnes. Agnes means pure. Okay? That is morally uncontaminated. This can also relate to integrity. Christians are not to be characterized as those who, refi- uh, who, um, who scheme or who plot against. Um, we're not to use double speak. That's what integrity uh, relates to, to being honest. First, uh, consider 2 Corinthians 1.12. We behave in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God. Whatever's lovely, the word here means what is pleasing, what is agreeable, what's attractive, what draws us together. But actions that reflect a love towards others. This would include speaking and acting in a gracious and appropriate way. Whatever's commendable, whatever's commendable or a good report of good report or of good character. And the Greek word there is uh, a euphemos, where we get the word euphemism, right? A, a, a speaking about something in a glowing or a good way. This signifies the delicacy which guards the, the lips. Whatever's commendable, guard, watch your lips could mean gracious. It also could mean a good name. But notice there's a change, verses 8, in verse 8, from whatever is, then there's a change to if there is anything. The word if, the word if does not indicate doubt or the possibility of something else, but rather a because, because. If there is anything, that is to say, because there is anything, is a better way to read it, because there is anything, or because there is something, then he gives us more words. Because there's virtue, arete, meaning excellence, flourishing, human flourishing, praise, praise or acknowledgement, that is, uh, uh, praising that which is done rightly or justly. These are the things that we should be thinking about. Um, now, each of these descriptors uh, refer, they all refer to something. In other words, but, but, that, but, but let's explore what that is. What, what is the is associated with these descriptions? 
So let's take a closer look. The list of whatever certainly applies to truth, beauty, goodness, justice, in a general sense. This is true. God has created all things and has left his signature, so to speak, on the things that he has made, as Romans 1 reminds us. In his letter to the Christians of Ephesus, Paul says that the fruit, that is the consequences of the life in Christ, is found in all <coughs> that is true and beautiful. And I think we always need to be reminded of God's uh, two-mode revelation, right? You've got a revelation of Scripture, which specifically gives us the revelation of, of redemption, um, but also God's general uh, revelation. Scripture's, scripture's very specific. Scripture's closed. General revelation is not, in both senses. General revelation does not reveal redemption. We go to Scripture for that. But general revelation is so vast and so uh, rich. It is, as John Calvin said, all of creation is the theater of God's glory the theater of God's glory. I love having these conversations with um, my kids and with other Christian uh, students who nowadays especially struggle with why do we have to study literature? Why do we study Chinese? Why do we study philosophy and history? Let's just do technical arts so we can make money, right? Um, and I always in, encourage you know, my kids, look, we're, we're studying the theater of God's glory. What is God revealing of himself in the things that he's made? Well, I don't see it. Well, I might not see it immediately either. So let's think about it. And let's take joy, let's take enjoyment in thinking about uh, these things. We don't need an immediate answer. Remember, humility should be open uh, to what the world, what God's... Um, Revelation has for us. Okay, but while I like the idea that we can think about truth, beauty, and goodness, and whatever's lovely, whatever's a good report, in these general senses, Paul is very specific. He's not just thinking about, well, let's just think about this, in a, you know, uh, around a fire or something like that. Paul is very specific, and he gets that in verse 9. God's people are to think on the things which they have learned, received, and they've heard. Verse 4. Chapter 9, verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 9. And what have they learned? The entire book, exactly what Paul has been speaking about. The humility of Christ in regard to salvation, the good news of the gospel, and Paul's example of a life transformed by the love of Christ. So while it's good to meditate on truth, beauty, and justice, in a general sense, this passage focuses on the good that relates to the work of Christ. Right. So let's, let's focus on uh, the work of Christ, the person of Christ, and uh, the gospel. Well, what does this lead? Where does this lead us? We have a we have a state of humility. Okay, let's do the work of meditating and thinking. But where does it lead us? Well, it leads us to our third point. leads us to peace. 
the habits of doing and the results of those habits have a way of transforming us. The more we practice, the more we conform to the object of our practice, we become like the things that we practice. Right? You can give a a number of different uh, 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 examples. Um, If you go back to the issue of Chinese right now, I mean, Chinese is so foreign to me, right? But the more I practice, and my faith and my hope is, and it's okay to have this faith and hope, is that that language would then conform my image to that language, okay? Um, another example that I get, maybe we have to work that out a little bit more, but another example would be sports, right? Uh, those of you under, who understand uh, sports, if you want to be good at sports, what do you have to do? You have to practice, 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 okay? So you're going to go on the basketball court, and you're going to shoot the basket over and over and over again until you reach a point where you actually walk your everyday life as an athlete. It transforms uh, the way you walk and the way you see uh, the world, right? Um, And this relates to our thinking. Whatever we hang our hopes on, core beliefs that hold the center of our world together, whether it's atheism, theism, nothingness, riches, food, drink, love, power, fame, consumerism, all of these practices will shape our lives. And some habits, of course, uh, are misguided. They misalign us. When we meditate on things that are not lovely, that that are unrighteous, unjust, or dishonorable, we become those things, right? We become like the idols that we serve, right? And not only that, uh, when we are misguided, that is away from uh, God's word, we, we're unsettled. We're almost annoyed, anxious, okay? The whatevers that Paul lists share a kind of unity and that they all relate to a kind of fittingness. They all fit together. If we're not in the way of the Lord, we feel disconnected, unsettled, our conscience bearing down on us. That which is true and honorable and good and just all are all pieces that harmonize into a coherent mosaic a conformity with God's cosmic law, which is also transformative. I'm reminded of the old hymn, This is my father's world. All nature sings and round me rings the music of the spheres, the morning light, the lily white, declare their maker's praise. He shines in all that's fair. He speaks to me everywhere. Pales in comparison to the Psalms, but you get my, my point. The beauty or truth of these spheres, that is all of creation, is something that's active and dynamic, embedded in our everyday experience. And we need to pay attention to it. A great painting, a a musical composition, is one in which the parts are almost mathematically put together in a coherent manner. A just law 
is a fitting retribution for particular actions. A true, lovely, and honorable marriage is one where spouses humbly work together to honor one another. And I, I mean, I've been reflecting, of course, tomorrow's 25 years of marriage. And there's work to, to do in a marriage and to have a, uh, a good marriage. But trust me when I say when the, the, the two partners are committed to one another, working together in the Lord, there is uh, a goodness, right? There is a peace. There's a joy uh, uh, in that after 25 years as well. But also Christians are to work. Uh, sorry, church members are to work to live in truth and beauty, in oneness. When we seek to outdo one another in, in honor. Right? So we can start practicing uh, this now at uh, uh, Christ's covenant. Christians are to frame their thinking in light of the gospel and the great Christian truth that in Christ, God was reconciling and is reconciling the world to himself, 2 Corinthians 5, 19. Okay. So we're always to kind of check our thoughts, our words, and our deeds to see, them, to see whether they conform to the ethic of loving God and loving neighbor, whether they reform, uh, conform to the reality of the good news. But there's a final question that we might ask. Here, I'm going to wrap things up a bit. There's a final question that we might ask. So what does the end of meditation practice feel like? Don't be afraid of that term, feel. I, I do think that truly knowing something puts all of our senses together, including feeling. Okay, uh, but I don't want to say mindless feeling, nor do I want to say mindfulness without feeling. But this, what, what does this feel like? It's a deep sense of knowing. It's peace. Verses seven and verse nine. These are just kind of bookends to this final exhortation. A peace that passes or goes beyond descriptive understanding, an experiential understanding when our hearts are knit to the object that we are communing with. Okay? If you go back to the example of learning Chinese language, it's very abstract for me at this point, but there comes a time where you will be able to speak without even thinking about it. This is analogous to a knowledge that surpasses bare understanding. Okay. At this point, you know, when I try to translate things, I'm trying to look at two different languages. But the more I practice, the more habit you put into it, you move past having to actually think about the language. And you just do it. It transforms you. That's uh, a piece that passes understanding. It's reaching a, a higher uh, level. Okay. Um, in, the, in the sense of studying God's word, it comes to a place where our hearts are knit to God's mind. Okay? It's not that we, can we, we can't describe what's happening, right? A piece that passes all of understanding. Oh, now we can't talk about it. We don't necessarily mean that. 
but we reach a state of what uh, uh, my friend in uh, America, the college that I used to work at, Geneva uh, a College, she would call, she's a philosopher, she would call integral focal awareness. That was a nice way of just saying aha moments. Remember you have those aha moments when you struggle to understand something and you've got a math problem that you're trying to work out or you're trying to pronounce the Chinese word? <laughs> and then, but then you reach this moment of aha, aha moment. That's when all the pieces come together in this like bing, right? The, the light goes on. That's what my friend Esther Meek refers to integral focal awareness, okay? When parts come together in a unified whole. You could think of something like uh, the beauty of a musical piece. You listen to a musical piece uh, and you, you feel like you're being elevated by that musical piece, right? That's a good musical piece because all the parts come together in this uh, a whole, right? Uh, they're a resting experience, or, or, or the artist, right? You see a classic work of art, and it's, it's like, it's elevating, right? And then you could, you could take all the parts of, the, of, let's say, a painting and put them uh, together. Of course, this is all, of course, uh, 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 this is an analogy uh, to the peace and security promised to us by God, which is much greater than these uh, earthly things. Peace in the New Testament... Um, of course, relates to that which is agreeable and peaceful, but and it's closely associated. The Greek word erene is associated with the Hebrew word shalom. Now, yes, shalom refers to peace, but it also includes justice and righteousness, or rightness, everything that's lovely, everything that's good of report. We're talking about right relationships with God, with self, with others, and with the world. In short, it is the experience of being in line with how God has ordered his creation. And as I was reflecting on this passage this week, I was thinking about, um, listening to some audiobooks too, about Christians throughout the ages who found that peace, who came to that peace uh, of God. And the best example is from um, uh, Augustine, Augustine of Hippo, a bishop of, uh, in uh, North Africa. Great intellectual mind, one of the greatest intellectual minds in, uh, uh, in Christian history, philosophy, and in, in theology. He was trained in all these higher ed degrees, but he was away from the Lord for a long time. Right? The world, the flesh, and the devil really had their hold on him. Until after meditation, after reading, taking up and reading the scriptures over and over and over again, he writes in his confession, I finally found peace when I began to rest in you, when he rested in God. We find peace when we rest in God. And there's many other examples, and I came across this week, uh, or returned to another Christian thinker, thinker uh, uh, Blaise Pascal, uh, who had about four Christian <laughs> conversions. The last conversion that he had was one in which he talks about this immense peace that he has. Right? Again, again a great intellectual mind who applies to meditating on uh, Scripture. And then, of course, and I'll just end with this, we have this uh, wonderful 
uh, 16th century catechism, the Heidelberg Catechism, question one. What is your only comfort in life and in death? It's making a lot of money. It's having a lot of power. Right? It's being famous. No, 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 no. What's your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood is fully satisfied for all my sins, paid for all my sins. And he preserves me in such a way that without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. There by his Holy Spirit, therefore by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. And we also have uh, what, what Paul says, right? I no longer live, right? I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. That's where your peace comes in. That's where your comfort. And that peace and that comfort will grow as you meditate, as you think on these things that are given to us in Scripture. Let's pray. Great God in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the examples of, of Christ, of, of, uh, of Paul, of other uh, Christians, Lord, who have faced uh, great persecution. Uh, they have been humble, but they count it as uh, very little uh, compared to the surpassing greatness of um, the truth that you've given to us in Christ, uh, in the gospel. We, we, we pray that you would help those of us here at uh, Christ Covenant, um, that you would help us to meditate on all that is good, all that is lovely, that all that is a good report, anything that's virtuous, everything, anything that's worthy of praise, to think on these things so that we can uh, grow in the assurance that you give to us by your Holy Spirit. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Ryan. Let's continue.